This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas, finally. Naomi Wolf, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you so much for having me. Um, before I go any further, I constantly get criticized for drinking alcohol while I talk to my guest. I'm told that it is uh, disrespectful. Can we, can <laughs> we just... Awesome. <laughs> Why would you not? <laughs> I, I'm, well, I'm, I'm doing interviews, like what, what, what a wonderful... Uh, proposal well you listen naomi you're one of the most prolific feminists of the 21st century so i'm a guy talking to a feminist of course i need a drink <laughs> <laughs> i'm having will not be very difficult <laughs> um, having said that uh you're probably my favorite feminist um because a uh you you believe in the family b you are critical of um, abortion. At C, you you shoot guns. And and the final and best one is that you don't hate men. Well, thank you. I, I all of that. I hope is <laughs> I don't shoot guns as well as I should because uh, you know, as I described in my latest Substack, I was I I grabbed the wrong weapon last week and so was trapped in an upstairs bathroom by a bear. Um, and armed only with a BB gun. <laughs> so a bear. I, or a bear. I have a little more uh, work to do uh, before I consider myself a, an expert, um, you know, markswoman. But but yes, thank you. All the things you said are generally, you know, generally, if not true, they're goals of mine. Yes. Um, but there's something wrong here because they're not supposed to be true. Uh, feminism has a, has a very interesting history, doesn't it? Mm, it really does. But in what regard do you mean? Well, it's it's moved through different waves, um, mm -hmm. and and third wave today is vastly different to the first wave feminism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. So so okay. So let let me let me ask it a different way. What what does it mean to be a feminist? Uh, well, so you know, people have different answers to to that question. Um, to me personally, it's not a complicated question or answer. It literally just, to me, feminism is just the logical extension of democracy and human rights. Um, the basic articulation of human rights that uh, began at the end, you know, the end of the 18th century with the Enlightenment and carried on developing, uh, especially initially in the West, but worldwide, their global ideals um, that you don't discriminate against people for any reason and feminism just adds including gender. Um, but having said that, a lot of people will have different definitions, but that's the essence of it for me, so it's not controversial. Uh, that said, as you rightly point out, you know, different, there have been three or four, I guess technically four different waves of feminism in the West. Those are kind of artificial constructs, the way all of history and historical eras are essentially artificial constructs, but they're also kind of useful as labels um, because different times called for different uh, reactions in terms of a political movement for women's equality. So I'm usually identified as, as someone who helped invent third wave feminism that was literally a coinage that I came up with at around the same time that another writer um, 
Rebecca Walker also came up with it. And it was to distinguish my generation of feminism from my mom's, the second wave. Uh, and they were much more understandably concerned with, um, you know, legal changes, uh, which they had to be, you know, getting into universities, getting into professions that had all been done for us. So we were more concerned with um, power in, in different, in different ways, using power, not shying away from power. And again, these are very rough labels, largely, you know, again, invented. Like I remember kind of sketching this out and thinking like, if you build it, they will come, I'll name it this, and mm -hmm. then we'll have movement. Um, but, you know, very loosely, uh, you know, every, every generation reacts against the previous generation so very loosely my mom's generation at that time you know feminism had become quite judgmental and quite sexually puritanical and very um blind about its own racial and class uh blind spots um to repeat a metaphor and so third wave feminism sought to be corrective to to that in various ways but is feminism still relevant in the West? Oh, my God. Do you know how many? I'm sorry. I don't mean to roll my eyes. But like literally my whole career, like from the very beginning, people have posed that question to me. And if you go sorry back. About that. To, no, no, don't be sorry. I mean, it's 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 always look, any question is legitimate. And it's it's always both a legitimate question and to me, in my view, to be honest, kind of tendentious in the sense that um, I don't think it's as common for other, you know, for the, I don't think the LGBTQ rights community's leaders are asked, you know, with that much frequency, is there really a need for, you know, queer equality? In oh, this but I can, I can tell you why, though. Why? Because they won't be cancelled. I mean, there, as, let me right. rephrase that. I won't be cancelled for asking you that question, but if I ask the same thing about, I don't know, LGBTQ, there'll be mass hysteria on Twitter. Well, uh, that's really unfortunate. Uh, yeah, I hear you. I mean, so to me, yes, it is still relevant. It's always going to be relevant mm -hmm. because even if in some fantasy version of history women no longer faced any kind of discrimination as women, you know, even if no woman ever again was going to be raped or beaten up or sexually assaulted or molested or stalked or, you know, paid less, uh, we'd still have to protect that equality, which we haven't reached yet. So, you know, women still have a pay gap in, every Western country of 25 to 30 percent, you know, compared to men. Um, the, the problems of race, you know, pregnancy, reproductive uh, rights, uh, uh, safety, these are not solved by any means. Virtually every woman I know has been raped or molested or stalked or sexually assaulted, if not once, you know, more mm. than once. And I don't I don't self-select hanging out with victims. It's just that common. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's relevant. I think. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, but I, I think maybe 
a variation of my question without it sounding so facetious is more a case of everything that you're saying sounds absolutely sane and reasonable. Thank you. No, no. So what so what I'm saying is do you need do you need to be of a particular um pigeonholing in order to be a reasonable person? Do, does that make sense? No, but I would say the same is true of race and class and sexual orientation. Mm. I mean to it's obvious that sane, civilized people would not discriminate against anyone on the basis of their race or class background or ethnic background or religious background or mm-hmm. sexual orientation choice or gender. But, uh, but, but if, if that view of mind that that's what it means to be reasonable were commonly he- held, we live in a very different world in which there would not be the kinds of inequalities around all of those matrices that we still see. Let's talk about your history a little bit for those who haven't heard of you. Okay. Uh, So begin at the beginning. Okay. Um, Well, I was born in San Francisco um, and I grew up in the Haight-Ashbury, which is a really cool place to have grown up in the 60s and 70s because it was ground zero of a real cultural revolution. Um, the, the hippie revolution when I was a tiny child, but when I was a teenager, the LGBTQ rights revolution was taking place right there. Harvey Milk was right there. You know, I was in high school the day that Harvey Milk was shot. But my experience of, of the Bay Area, you know, coming of age was, it was so idealistic. And we were going to, I really believe that when I was an adult, all of the isms like racism and sexism and homophobia would be behind us. Um, so it was a super idealistic time. And it was also a time in which I saw, uh, I saw democracy work really well on a kind of um, local level. Uh, In other words, in San Francisco at that time, this really affected me. uh, There were interest groups, um, most importantly in San Francisco, uh, uh, political blocks made up of recent immigrants from China, super poor people, but really well organized. And they were having huge impact at City Hall as a result of being well-organized and also the LGBTQ community, um, the gay community was super well-organized at a time when that fight was really just beginning. So that really gave me the very dramatic illustration that, you know, political organizing could create a power um, and, and good, good outcomes. Uh, I went to Yale as an undergraduate. I got a Rhodes Scholarship. I went to Oxford as a graduate student. Uh, I wrote my first book very young. I wrote The Beauty Myth um, when I was like 26, and it happened to be the right book at the right time. Mm. Uh, It was a huge bestseller, and so I really have had a weird life in a way because I don't really – I was well-known you know, while I was still kind of – you know, growing up. So I really don't know what it's like not to be well known, you know, from a very young age. Um, but yeah, since that time, I wrote seven more books, um, usually about women's issues or civil rights, all nonfiction, all bestsellers. 
and traveled around the world, started a bunch of uh, activist movement entities, started a leadership institute for young women, um, had a family, have two children, uh, helped advise a vice presidential campaign, helped advise a presidential campaign. Um, gosh, I'll fast forward. Uh, and I co-founded something called dailyclout.io, which is a tech company, which helps people use democracy. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty much, uh, a nutshell guide to my bio. And then something happened, uh, 2020, the, the year that nobody will forget. Um, right. and for all kinds of different reasons, you came back into the spotlight for, um, I think reasons that we can all understand. Uh, but then you also got canceled all over the place, which meant that you, yeah, which meant that you were doing something right. Well, as it turns out, thank you, Jerm. Uh, yeah, it's super ironic um, that we're, it's now, uh, we're, we're speaking right now at a moment when the New York Times and the Washington Post and the NIH are all covering this big, important story that uh, menstrual dysregulation is very common. I believe over 40% of women have it. Conspiracy theory. Right, exactly. After they've had the mRNA vaccination. And mm. as a longtime reporter on women's health issues, over a year ago, more like March of 2021, I had started to hear reports of menstrual dysregulation on social media. I had about 150,000 followers on Twitter at that time. And I started to do what I'm supposed to do. I started to report on this story, just like I broke you know, news about uh, silicone breast implants back in the day, uh, just like I, you know, wrote a whole book about, um, you know, issues with uh, pregnancy and childbirth uh, in one of my books. It was a standard thing for me to do is cover stories like this and alert people if women were having health problems that were unique to them. But this was called a conspiracy theory. Media Matters uh, attacked me. Uh, a CNN commentator attacked me. I was called bat shit crazy and counterfactual and I was deplatformed by Twitter and by YouTube and by gosh every platform and and not only was I deplatformed um, but Twitter appears to have also brought kind of tweets taken out of context or that I erased immediately to you know the same news outlets that had had me write for them as columnists for decades. You know the same platforms that had me appear regularly. Now they were uh, smearing me and calling me, um, you know, insane and so on, using these this material that was completely uh, misrepresented. And yeah, and since then I, you know, I I just kept asking more and more questions about this and finally wrote a book about the whole issue of what happened to us in the last two years. But it certainly began with my being vastly deplatformed and globally smeared for telling the truth. Um, in my notes um, now in front of me, I had accidentally written cancer culture, but it really is the same thing, isn't it? It's, it's a cancerous cancel culture. Yes, it is, Jerm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I suppose... I suppose one of those things you have to realize is that when you're taking flack, you're over the target. And so perhaps all of these things are compliments. 
I, I mean, I certainly experience them now as compliments, but that doesn't mean, look, as a journalist, it's a shameful time. You know, these are, these are colleagues of mine, mm. you know, these are legacy news outlets that I've, I've respected for decades and, and written for, for decades, right? I was a columnist for The Guardian. I was a columnist for the Sunday Times of London. I was a columnist for, you know, the same people who uh, said things about me that were not even true, but more seriously, right? My own personal ego is not the issue. Much more seriously, they didn't check to see if there was anything to these reports that women were experiencing menstrual dysregulation. So it's a shameful example and just one in many, many, many examples. And I, I go into detail in my book, The Bodies of Others, about how this came about, you know, how the Western media got purchased essentially by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and by pharmaceutical interests to lie and smear people like me. But the shameful thing is that a whole generation of young women who need their you know, menstrual cycles in order to get pregnant someday and have healthy pregnancies and have healthy babies, um, their very delicate reproductive health has been disrupted. And, and we, mm. you know, and the iceberg of additional reporting that I've done and that experts I, I oversee have done uh, showing harms to reproduction in both men and women. But, but that's criminal, you know, when it, and, 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 so much more serious than what happened to me reputationally is the symptom it is of the the death of of kind of western journalism well yeah it's funny that you well not funny it's ironic and sad that you say the death of journalism but the death of many many people in the last year and a half uh, for a completely unnecessary um, injection yeah yeah, I mean, I can speak about that too if you if you wish me to. No, for sure. I mean, I'm on. The, you're preaching to the converted, but yes. Yeah, well, you know, when I said it's just the tip of the iceberg, uh, since March of 2021, and most importantly, in the last, I would say, four four months or so, um, I've started a project that I think is really historic, um, in which we put out a call on War Room and Daily Clout, my company, uh, and Steve Bannon's platform, War Room, to ask for experts to read through the Pfizer documents. And these are uh, 55, of course, you know, 55,000 documents released under court order, internal Pfizer documents released under court order, um, that the FDA had wanted to keep concealed for 75 years. Uh, and now that I've seen them, I know why they wanted to keep them hidden until we were all dead and gone. So in response to this call, we got 3,000 physicians and RNs and medical fraud investigators and biostatisticians and research scientists and uh, lab clinicians to read through these documents and issue reports. And the, you can, your viewers can find all the reports on dailyclout.io. They're all written in language that anyone can understand. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is these reports really document a crime, a massive crime against humanity, um, harms that are just beyond the capability of human imagination mm -hmm. to 
to even process um, thousands and thousands of severe injuries, uh, 1,200 deaths, four people dying the day they're injected, um, babies going to multi-organ system failure, uh, minors uh, with heart damage, uh, neurological events, blood clots, lung clots, encephaly, multiple sclerosis, uh, tachycardia, myocarditis, pericarditis. I mean, harms you can't believe. And also the reports have, we now understand more about the mechanism of these harms, right? And so I knew early on that these were, um, these were represented, I, I knew I was seeing an act of war because I've, I've, I was married to a White House speech writer. I advised two presidential campaigns. Uh, this is not normal politics, right? You can't, you don't let an agency kill your voters for 14 months under ordinary circumstances. So this was clearly to me a hostage White House overseeing a hostage FDA, which was thoroughly uh, corrupted, thoroughly colluding with what looked like an enemy attack on, on our population. Um, and I knew I would find eventually um, our adversaries' hands in this wreckage of our population that the Pfizer documents um, revealed. And on my Substack today, I posted it last night, uh, I found the smoking gun, essentially, um, a trail of documents that show that uh, the Pfizer injections are manufactured with um, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, at the heart of the manufacturing process and the formulation Imagine process. my shock. Right. Right? Yeah. And also um, the antigen tests and the PCR tests. So uh, I'm looking at a bioweapon. You know, this, this is an act of war. And I agree. And it's not just against the U.S. It's against... Uh, it's against all of Western Europe, you know, maybe South Africa as well. I haven't looked at those numbers yet, but certainly Australia, mm. you know, New Zealand, Canada, um, all, all around the world, the people who represent threat to the CCP's hegemony and, you know, the hegemony of the plans of the World Economic Forum, you know, had through this injection there armed forces taken out, uh, their pilots taken out, their nurses taken out, and so on. It's a pretty big deal, isn't it? I mean, people are going to look back at us in 20 years, 25, 30 years time, and they're going to see this mess that happened. Yeah, I mean, it's, is it a pretty big deal? It's, you know, I'm the granddaughter of a woman who lost nine brothers and sisters in the Holocaust. And so I don't say this lightly, but in terms of the scale of what we're looking at, it's bigger than the Holocaust. And yeah, Ziv said the same thing. Yeah. yeah, well, that's brave. Yeah, mm. it, it's, it's, it's an attack on all of humanity. And it's an attack on all of humanity at the very, you know, especially, uh, you know, these experts who work with us have documented 360 degree reproductive harm, as I mentioned. So the injections suppress sperm counter motility. They, they disrupt menstrual cycles. They uh, lipid nanoparticles go through the placenta. So they harm the environment of the fetus. Um, you know, they, they, the 
polyethylene glycol gets into breast milk. So babies who are nursing are going into seizure and failing to thrive. Um, you know, at every step, you know, there's baby die off worldwide. I mean, all of this is documented in my Substack and on in the reports on dailycloud.io. You know, this is a well thought out attack, not just on this generation, but on the next generation to to impair us, you know, forever going depopulate. Certainly depopulate. But I think I think it'll be interesting to see who is left standing, you know, who wasn't given this exact formulation or these exact um, lethal um, injections, you know, which populations weren't. I know China doesn't use the same formulation. I, I need to look more into that. But, um, but you know, we don't know what the elites are even, whether they have a placebo, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but, I mean, the things I've learned play so directly into this being a bioweapon with such sophistication. Because, for instance, you can target who's going to die or get impaired for life by doing things as simple as leaving the formula more than two hours so that it uh, is at room temperature because lipid nanoparticles become gel or solid at room temperature and at body temperature. Um, By just changing the dosage or changing the brand, you can decide who's going to live and who's going to die or who's going to be impaired. Moderna has 100 micrograms of lipid nanoparticles, spike protein and, and mRNA, uh, whereas Pfizer has only 30. So Moderna has more than three times the dose for adults. And in the internal Pfizer documents, it showed that 100 micrograms was so toxic, they had to drop it internally due to its quote-unquote reactogenicity. So, you know, you give people Moderna instead of Pfizer, you know you're giving them a toxic dose. You give them a booster that, you know, on my Substack there's an image of rats that are autopsied. It's kind of gross, but people have to see this. And they're the rats are split open. It's a, a study out of Hong Kong in 2021, overseen by the Chinese Communist Party, of course, which you know all science is in China or Hong Kong. And it shows that when you inject the mRNA vaccine into rats, the first dose causes some damage. The second dose causes visibly enlarged hearts, visible white patches on the hearts of wow. the mice. That's, yeah, visible. And you can see these little animals opened up. You can see these like grotesquely yeah. organs. And and they knew that, right? This was August of 2021. They knew this and they kept going. And that's why people don't understand how dangerous these boosters are. The, mm. Every additional injection you get raises the, 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 the toxic load in your body that they know causes progressive impairment um so you know it's easy you know take out a population just Mm. give them another you know it's 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 kind of genius i mean it's a satanic genius level of like slowly killing people off without the division that this stuff has caused even down to families have you found the same thing Absolutely. And I write about this in The Bodies of Others, my new book about the last two years. Um, certainly happened to me and my loved ones, uh, my husband and his, his, you know, friends and family. But it's also happened to millions of families uh, in my country, and I'm sure around the world, um, people who used to be 
sane and reasonable um, and, and be able to tolerate difference, you know, and tolerate people they liked and respected and cared about, you know, not agreeing with them about everything. Now that's no longer possible. And as half of my country anyway has gone into a kind of cult mentality, mm. certainly my, my old, you know, teammates on the left have gone into that cult mentality. I, I've been told things like, um, I won't sit with you outside. Uh, I won't sit with you inside. Um, you know, and, and then there's straight up the construction of a discrimination society in what used to be the most inclusive egalitarian city on, on earth, which was, you know, New York City, which welcomed people of all kinds for decades and decades. Um, that was its strength. It's, it's vibrant diversity within a matter of weeks of full-on discrimination society was constructed. I'm not vaccinated and I can't, or until recently, I couldn't walk indoors in New York City and eat a meal with my kids. I, I literally couldn't sit at a lunch counter in the hotel where I was staying because I'm not vaccinated. And I was told, you know, that I couldn't sit there. Uh, it was illegal. And so I had to have my lawyer on speed dial and you know, I texted the mayor of New York and the governor and said, I'm here if you want to arrest me. Um, you know, and, and families that are so right on that would never discriminate against anyone based on, you know, ethnicity or, or gender or sexual orientation were 100% fine with discriminating against people on the basis of medical status. And it is very, that is a wound that I do not see uh, healing or closing just because, you know, the pandemic is behind us for now. Um, it's very hard to forgive people who went along with such an evil thing and colluded yes. with it. Uh, and, and the fact that there's no self-awareness, you know, these are people who are perfectly aware of the history of discrimination in, in our own country, perfectly aware of the histories of discrimination in countries around the world. And, and that they, they are completely, I mean, I don't even understand the cognitive process. Absolutely able to say, well, you know, I, I won't sit down with you indoors. You know, I won't stand up with you against this vile crime that's being committed against, you know, half the population of this country um, is extraordinary to me. And as a Jewish person, it's extraordinary. You know, like ha we've seen this before. This is not the first time humanity has tried to treat a group of people as second class citizens. Uh, but, but people I know and love went along with it with no problem. Have you found yourself reevaluating a lot of other things that you perhaps had views on? In other words, have you been red pulled in many other aspects of your life? Uh, how do you define that? Um, have you had, um, have you had, um, I don't want to say a 180 because that would mean you're going back to your previous position, but perhaps uh, an awakened view on something. I, I have to say yes, um, painfully, right? It hasn't been fun. I thought I was on the right side of history, being on the progressive left in America. And I certainly saw that the progressive left in America is not the left that I thought it was. It's not, I mean, the, these people are acting like Marxists in 
in the non-cool times of Marxist history, you know, like they're, they're acting like Stalinists and um, without any, you know, as I said, no, no self-awareness, the rigidity, the conformity, the lack of critical thinking, the uh, willingness to, you know, as you say, cancel, turn on people who don't agree with them, the inability to engage in civil dialogue, um, that's really shocking. But I guess also, you know, I've been having been rejected so dramatically by my tribe for doing things I've done my whole career, literally supporting the Constitution and engaging in, you know, journalism, right? That's I haven't changed. The left has changed, right? But very often these days I'm, I'm talking to people on the right, you know, because I'll talk to anyone about the Constitution. I don't care. I actually believe in dialogue. I have no mm. problem talking with people like you know, who don't agree with me. I, I love it because that's how I learn things. But um, I I have to say that in the last two years, it's been startling to see that the people I admire most right now are, are not the people I've spent my life with for decades. Um, it's people I have nothing in common with in a lot of ways who are uh, standing up for the Constitution, standing up for human rights, standing up for children um, and the family and individual freedoms. And, you know, they may, I mean, the, you know, they're not the people I spent time in, you know, chatting with at cocktail parties in the media corridor of New York and in Washington, D.C., you know, but I, they're my brothers and sisters because they're the ones who are, standing up at a time when our, our rights are being crushed around the world. And so that's been, I guess, an education. I guess the other thing that really surprised me is that in America, this may not be relevant to a global audience, but in America, we were told that conservatives, we progressives were told that conservatives are all you know, homophobic and transphobic and racist and anti-Semitic and sexist and all the ists, right? <laughs> and and now I know a lot of conservatives, and I'm sure there's some of that out there, but overwhelmingly that stereotype is not matching my personal experience at all. And in in fact, I'm I'm seeing more willingness of people on the right to engage with people as individuals yeah. than than I, I experienced on the left, even before now. So, you know, other things, I guess if you get to like platform planks, yes, I also have to say yes. For instance, you mentioned in your intro that I, I'm learning to, you know, to use firearms and I, <laughs> I know, right? I know. It is kind of awesome. I agree with you. But <laughs> I was raised to think that, you know, only thugs and, and murderers, like guns or use guns and now i i look at what's going on in the world and i thank god for the second amendment i think it's like one of the few things mm. that stands between my country and and the fate of a country like australia i don't know what the laws are like in south africa whether you guys are allowed to or have well, the right to have a gun well i'll tell you the answer in a moment but i remember you saying recently that you have a did you say you got a point two two? is that right yes Okay, so all right, so you're still getting two guns. Um, yeah, we'll 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 forgive you because point two two is a gateway <laughs> gun, but once you once yeah. you once you know how to shoot, you'll you'll be shooting these. <laughs> oh, that's 
It's a 50 kill. Yeah, so it's a 50 kill. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big gun. Yeah. So to answer your question, yes, we can shoot guns in South Africa. Obviously, legal, legally. I mean, those massacres that that we often see being re uh, reported coming out of America, those are lunatics. Um, and, and I don't think that has anything to do with gun laws. That has to do with those kids having troubled backgrounds. You know, I really agree with you, and mm. I would, I would add an observation, if I may, and it may sound, mm. there's no good time to say this because there's always going to be something tragic happening, especially in the United States. But I thoroughly believe at a time like this that, you know, freedom isn't, that there's risk, you know, that a free society takes risks and isn't safe. And, but uh, in this, you know, there are going to be people who are not stable, who get access to weapons if you have a second amendment. And that's always tragic and every, you know, mm. loss of life tragic, but even more tragic is to live under the foot of an oligarch and yes. a tyrant. And our, our forefathers knew that. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm really interested in, you know, hear your thoughts about this, but I'm, I'm finding that right now, um, I'm finding that right now it's countries that have experience of vicious colonization or vicious suppression that are the most alert to what's going on in the world right now in terms of hmm. the suppression of freedoms. Um, for instance, interesting. I, I was very interested to see that it was, it was countries in Africa that said no to the WHO treaty that was proposed at the end of May um, because, you know, they were not into giving up their sovereignty. And mm. I had to assume, I, I didn't see enough in-depth reporting about this at all, but I had to assume, or it was intriguing to assume that countries that have experienced what it's like not to have sovereignty and how vulnerable a population can be if they don't have sovereignty and autonomy, mm. um, you know, would be alert to not giving up sovereignty. Um, so that's just a, that's just a thought. And I wonder what your, your uh, thoughts are about. That. Well, it's interesting because South Africa, um, has a history, as you know, of, um, opp oppression, right. Of a group of people and they had to carry a pass. Now, do you think that that same group of people is going wow. to want to carry a pass again? I, they had to carry a pass. What, what mm. do you, can you tell me more about that? Like to enter cities? Well, black black South Africans had to carry a pass. It was it was known as a dom pass, uh, um, and that was essentially um, their identity under the the old government. And if they didn't have this, they could be penalised. This whole this whole last two and a half years, Naomi, has been a very weird time for everyone. Right. I mean, right. every every country in the world isn't this weird. Every country in the world has has got the same story. Yeah, it is so weird that I actually speculate about it in the book. Do you want me to go right into mm. to come to mind? I mean, first, I can't agree with you enough that it's not normal that countries around the world would have the exact same script, right? Mm. And even if you grant that there's kind of a central script production uh, origin, say the World Economic Forum, that it's going out to, you know, puppet 
governments around the world, it just seems like beyond human capability for the same means, you know, to be reproduced in the same way country after country. Um, um, so it, it's it's beyond human capability that uh, that 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 in countries around the world there are the same memes, the same script. Don't hug grandma, you know, in India, in Britain, in Canada, um, uh, translated all over the world. So to me, it says two things. One of them is creepy, and one of them is super creepy. So the creepy one is AI now mm. has capability to tell the same story in. M- medium after medium after medium in every language around the world uh, and also tweak itself in real time you know with with real time inputs from people's reactions to mm. the narrative which is you know creepy enough but i <laughs> the end of of bodies of others really gets into the the kind of metaphysical questions and i i will just be honest with you um I personally think we're in a time that cannot be explained away solely by human history and, you know, solely by the work of human beings doing stupid or malevolent human political things. I personally think that in addition to AI, right, which may be a manifestation of of negative forces anyway that are metaphysical, but I, I personally think we're in a time where there's actual evil you know, which is manifesting in the world, like spiritual evil, um, like a biblical level of spiritual evil. And Mm. I don't say that comfortably because I'm a secularly trained humanist intellectual. You're not supposed to talk about spiritual matters in public. That said, I truly believe that we're in something that can't be explained. Uh, Like I've looked at it from every angle and it's so, so vast and so lockstep and so many people agreed at the same time to do Mm. the same awful thing to hurt children in the same ways to agree to you know violate their bodies in the same ways to reject their neighbors in the same ways you know around the world it just can't be explained away except by something more like milton's satan you know like something more metaphysical and grand and spectacular and beyond human you know human powers so paradoxically when i reached that conclusion i kind of decided that i had to believe in god more literally than i had been because this giant evil had to be directed at something and uh, i think i'm probably i'm not proselytizing but that's the humble conclusion mm. that I personally have come to that, you know, it is just time to hold on to God right now all, all we can or all I can anyway. I'm not this should do because um, I don't think human beings can get out of this by ourselves. The the silver lining is that people are are looking for perhaps something that they should have looked at many years ago. Does that make sense? I, I'm sure. But it was hard to look many years ago because everything was okay, mm. <laughs> right? And for many of us, everything was okay. Yeah. No, but, I, I, I'm to hear. But yeah. isn't there, again, it's a double-edged sword. Isn't there something wonderful also? I mean, if you take a stoic view and go, well, we've had these big obstacles, but they're also massive opportunities. You and I wouldn't be talking, for example. Um, True. And I'm sure you wouldn't have met some amazing people were it not for the tragedies of the last two years, I'm sad to say. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And it's almost like, I mean, this kind of time reminds me of, I don't want to say like Jesus's time, 
but a little bit like Jesus's time in the sense that, you know, the Roman Empire and people mm. being fight on hilltops and, you know, a handful of very idealistic people trying to renew a religion. Um, but it definitely reminds me of the beginning of our country, you know, the, the, the independence movement for in the United States when, you know, we were up against a massive evil empire, if you like, and a handful of patriots who didn't have any legitimate hope of defeating the largest power on earth kind of found each other and, and had a success beyond, you know, what I think human beings could hope to have in the middle of the wilderness at that time. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible, disgusting fight, and I'm so tired of it. Mm. But I have beautiful, heroic people, not just the leaders, you know, who might cherish, but also just, quote unquote, ordinary people around the world who are, I mean, I, I really do see the world kind of dividing right now into the sheep and the goats or whatever yeah. the metaphor you use, you know, like heroes and, 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 and not heroes, you know, people have to stand somewhere right now and um and it is really beautiful to to see communities of what liberty um find each other and grow worldwide i guess my only question before i get too cheerful about that is i do feel it's a race against time and i don't know if we're gonna find each other and organize and empower each other in time to save humanity i pray that we do I, I saw you had a conversation not too long ago with uh, Jeffrey Tucker, who was also on my show, and um, and you were talking about the the overarching power of the state, and um, that has been very, very uh, not significant. That has been very um, blatant the last two and a half yeah. years, hasn't it? it? Certainly has. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I don't think. I don't think there are easy answers, though, to that one, because Jeffrey, as a libertarian and an economist, is going to not like the overweening power of the state. But, you know, the bad guys that I identify in the bodies of others, they include the state, they include the government, governments around the world, but they also include the private sector. So I, I, I don't think there's something magical about identifying the state as a bad guy or identifying the private sector as a bad guy. In this case, we're seeing them work together in, you know, the classic yeah. definition of <clears throat> public private partnerships. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So I, I mean, so that's exactly my experience. Um, I have generally and historically been more critical of the state than I have of the private sector and I still am, but I'm very disillusioned because I've seen what private companies like Pfizer and Facebook and Reuters and The Guardian have done. Uh, they have completely obliterated um, any trust that they probably should have had. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, what can I say? It's... I think this is a time, you know, again, back to your point about mixed blessings, when events are upending all of our labels, right? And all of our favorite approaches <laughs> to to uh, to problems. So, you know, if my um, kind of liberal social, quasi-socialism got turned on its head and I realized 
I actually don't want the state deciding everything at all. It, it, right, um, yes. Who are, are, you know, looking at the dark side of the private sector and raising questions about that. Let's... um. Your internet connection is not terribly great, so let's let's come in for a little bit of a of a of a landing, um, with some happy, uplifting conversation. Because I worry, because I want to go back to <laughs> your guns. I want to talk. I want to ask you: When did you decide that you wanted to to go down this route? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, when did I decide? Well, I you know I I married my bodyguard. So. <laughs> Um, I, I had had death threats, sadly, in uh, 2014 when I was um, talking about not bombing civilians in Palestine and in Israel. You know, not a very radical thing to say, don't bomb civilians on both sides. But I was getting death threats and they were serious death threats. And I was a single mom and uh, with, you know, minor children at that time. And... I was really scared. And so a colleague said, look, you've got to talk to this guy, Brian O'Shea. And, um, and I did, and I hired him and he kept me safe and made my stalker go away and, um, you know, got rid of the, the death threats. Uh, and we were very appropriate for six months. And then we started dating, fell in love, got married. Point being, I, you know, he carries weapons and is highly trained in using weapons. And I really liked I really liked that, you know, it, it <laughs> felt really good not be scared, right? And, and, and I couldn't be a hypocrite and pretend I hated guns because this man was totally keeping me safe. But I think the reason I started to um, want to learn um, marksmanship is, well, the last two years have been quite terrifying and mm. I fully expect, you know, I've been predicting what has come about in the United States, you know, which is pretty easy to predict based on history, well, you know, food shortages, uh, supply chain disruptions, um, there are going to be power grid blackouts and uh, cyber attacks and so on. And so I also anticipate more and more social instability. And I know I need to help defend myself and my and home your family and feminist and my family and as a feminist I can't just leave it to the guy you know to be armed and I guess the other thing I should say is I'm a you know I'm a survivor of sexual assault and the mm. first time someone taught me how to fire it was actually a galil in case you're making fun of my 22 the first weapon I shot was a you know a very big galil um <laughs> but I I, I felt uh, a two twenty three Galil ACE short barrel rifle. Um, and uh, I felt like in a moment, my life changed as a woman because I thought, wow, you know, I really like not being a victim. I really like not, I like mm. being, it's not that I want to aggress or I don't like violence, but I would much rather aggress against an aggressor than be a victim again. So well, as a feminist, Yes, you know, mind blowing. I'm sorry to, but just to think, wow, that was easy. All I need to do is be armed, and you know, I don't have to have this existential vulnerability. Mm. Well, actually, if you think about it, a gun is the great equalizer. That's really true, and and honestly, as a as a mother, I feel now that I was irresponsible not learning marksmanship mm. sooner to protect my family. Yeah, I, I, I love your story. 
So you were a true damsel, I mean a feminist in distress. <laughs> it's okay, yes. Um, yeah, no, it's a, I guess it's a pretty old story. It's, you know, I'm not the first person who fell in love with her bodyguard, I'm sure. But I think, um, wasn't, yeah. well, didn't Whitney Houston also fall in love with her bodyguard? <laughs> Absolutely no question. Yes, it's, you know, these, I'm, you know, I'm not pretending that it's not a cliche, but, but it's certainly. Uh, in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? That's so tough. I mean, I think by definition, how, how long out are we looking at? Uh, it's the interpretation's all yours. Okay. I mean, honestly, that crystal ball right now literally ref reflects the human soul. So whatever happens is completely up to us. If we stay passive and conforming, we're all going to be transhumanist fodder in three to five years mm. and our kids surfs. Um, if we continue to have a great awakening, um, you know, Bill Gates will be in prison. Klaus Schwab will be in prison. Uh, we'll have risen up against China effectively and there'll be a rebirth of freedom. Naomi, uh, where can people follow your work? Thank you. You can follow me and my 3,000 expert volunteers reading the Pfizer documents at dailyclout.io. All the reports are there. Um, you can follow me on Getter, Dr. Naomi R. Wolf, and please buy my book, uh, which is being uh, largely censored, but is still a bestseller. It's called The Bodies of Others, um, The New Authoritarians, COVID-19, and the War Against the Human. And you can get that in local bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and AllSeasonsPress.com. Naomi Wolf, thank you so much for joining me in the uh, somewhat uh, uh, badly connected trenches. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to our next talk in better connected trenches. Thank you so much. <laughs> Don't go anywhere, Take Naomi. Care. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.